The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for June 15th, 2022. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you from a sweltering Austin, Texas. It's actually not bad right now. It's 90 degrees, which considering the weather over the last week is effectively a brisk sweater weather. We've got some things heating up in D.C. Is the January 6th public hearings already hitting a snag? The primetime performance, the debut was last week. And yet we already have some bumps in the road this week, including a star witness not making his appearance and a canceled session today. We will get into all of that. And well, friends, I've told you this once. I've told you this twice. This is just something that everybody's got to pay attention to. It's the economy, stupid. And right now, there are economic indicators, including the very loud ones that have television networks dedicated to them, that are saying things you don't want said. Pull out your claws, because we're in a bear market, and we're going to talk about not only what that is, what that means, but also why it is specifically damaging to Joe Biden. And finally, we will talk about the new proposed gun control legislation, bipartisan though it is in the Senate, specifically two elements of it, red flag laws and the use of juvenile records in background checks. And to be honest, background checks in general. To do that, we're going to bring on one of our favorite commentators whenever there are gun-related issues. Stephen Gutowski of The Reload. All that. But first. It's no big deal, but I'll tell you the Putting together uh, the the video and the exhibits is a, a, an exhausting uh, exercise yeah. for our very small, you know, video staff. So we're trying to, you know, we were going to have one, two, three in one week, and it's just it's too much uh, for to put it all together. So we're trying to give them a little. That is a clip from Morning Joe, wherein a member of the January sixth committee describes why, well. They're taking a day off today. As we mentioned before, Thursday was prime time. Monday and Tuesday, you had hearings. This is supposed to last for about a week and a half. The grand finale will also be in prime time. Make sure you watch for that ratings comparison. And also, 
exactly how many networks carry it. This is how The Hill described what happened. The House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has postponed its Wednesday hearing, slated to review former President Trump's efforts to pressure the Justice Department into investigating his unfounded claims of election fraud. In an advisory, the committee says its scheduled hearing on Thursday would still take place, but provided few other details. This delay is the latest stumbling block for the committee after Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager, failed to appear on Monday's hearing because of a family emergency. Now, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Everybody has a family emergency when they want to get out of something. But this one was apparently legit. Bill Stepien's wife went into labor. So a literal execution of the phrase don't tell me about the labor show me the baby that's why he did not appear on monday the committee filled that time by showing roughly 45 minutes of taped and edited depositions of various members of the trump world orbit describing what happened the night of the election so here are my thoughts. I actually liked the the I'm, I'm kind of coming around on the January 6th commission. If if they're going to just show people forced to be honest on the inside of a massive political campaign, specifically, uh, you know, Jason Miller and Stepien were both commenting, they were going kind of minute by minute through when Fox News called Arizona for Joe Biden, effectively saying that there was a lot of shock amongst their crew, largely because they were now unsure of their own numbers. Because while they might have, even by their own numbers, thought that Joe Biden had a lead, they did not think by their count that it was sure enough to make a call. This then, of course, cascades into all sorts of madness as it now looks a little bleak as to what Donald Trump's road back to electoral victory is. Stepien and a few others are cautioning him in his remarks to not be too out there. But my favorite subplot of this entire situation has unfolded and did unfold yesterday when, or Monday rather, when the question of how drunk Rudy Giuliani came to the fore. Both Miller and Stepien said he was drunk but they did not say exactly how they knew he was drunk or how drunk he was. Meanwhile, we know from, you know, being around political media, let alone reading the infamous Olivia Nuzzi feature piece about him taking down like seven Bloody Marys during, uh, during brunch, that Rudy is, you know, it's a bit of a drinker. Man has lived a life. 
He likes to put a few away. You would imagine at a festive occasion where you believe that your friend is getting reelected president, maybe you'd put a few down during that. It was an inebriated Rudy Giuliani that apparently charged the campaign leadership demanding to speak to the president because he wanted the president to not only not concede or even give any hint that there was any weakness, but rather to declare that he won. Stepien and Miller both say that they pushed back against it. Giuliani, meanwhile, had the following thing to say on Twitter Tuesday. Quote, I am disgusted and outraged by the outright lie by Jason Miller and Bill Stepien. I was upset that they were not prepared for the massive cheating as well as other lawyers around the president. I refused, he types in all caps, all alcohol that evening. My favorite drink, Diet Pepsi. Now, there will be later testimony, uh, I'm sure, in this hearing that, indeed, really, Giuliani did earn himself uh, a more central position in the post-election Trump orbit, although, by all reporting, it did not last long. His Sidney Powell-Giuliani Leadership coalition was a bit of a public embarrassment. And if there's one thing we know about Trump, he does not like people embarrassing him in his name. The Four Seasons fiasco comes to mind. And then, of course, that very, very hot ballroom press conference where they promised that they would unleash the Kraken, but is probably more famous for the visuals of Rudy Giuliani's brains leaking out of his ears, or at least it looks like that. It was probably hair dye, but someone should check on Rudy just the same. In all seriousness, though, this is the kind of stuff that I wanted from the January 6th commission. New information. I mean, I didn't learn anything uh, about what was happening in terms of the decision-making or the temperament of Donald Trump on election night. I think I pretty much had a grasp on all that without hearing anybody's firsthand account while just watching him speak on election night. But I didn't know that there was a controversy about whether or not Rudy Giuliani was drunk. In fact, the stuff that I like the best about this, this uh, testimony is it's basically just a live performance. Well, as recorded live performance of the kind of interviews that these people would give to journalists to write books. So you're just sort of getting it in their own words. It'd make for a really good podcast, to be honest. I remember back in 2008, the uh, financial crash. Mostly what I remember about that is an SNL weekend update where Jason Sudeikis was in a barrel because he was a banker who was now bankrupt and he was in an old timey barrel like poor people in old cartoons and short films used to be. Now, 
I was also uh, a damn sight younger. I uh, was pretty much, you know, if if you call living check to check, uh, living beyond your means check to check, not a lot, but I remember one time I I had a balance of negative $5,000. And when I saw that, my heart dropped and I thought, this is an amount of money for which I will never pay back. I will, I'm going to fall into permanent uh, debt because this is just an absolute uh, a death sentence for me financially. Now, thanks to some uh, smart moves and, and things that, that uh, uh, you know, a little self-discipline for your boy, I got better. It's a lot easier to make up a $5,000 debt when you're actually making better money. But I didn't really have a whole lot. I couldn't lose a whole lot. I didn't have any stocks. I didn't have any property. I didn't have any retirement. I was just, you know, kind of an average Florida goofball who liked drinking on the weekends and some weekdays. So, if that's the last experience that America had with a real and true recession, something that had a definitive beginning and then an obvious and lingering aftermath, then one has to wonder as we see such ominous dark clouds gathering if there will be such a starter's pistol for the American economy in the next few months. And when we look at this, if indeed we are heading into a recession, we might look at moments like this. The S&P 500 fell 3.9% on Monday, its worst daily drop since May 18th when it slumped 4%. That pushed that benchmark index down 21.8% from January 3rd of this year. Meanwhile, the Russell 2000 index of smaller stocks got smoked, falling 4.8%, its worst day since June 2020, in the heat of the COVID crisis. Now, there is good news and there is bad news. The bad news is, is that nobody wants to see that. <laughs> nobody with a mutual fund, nobody with a retirement fund, nobody who's got money in the market, nobody wants to see the market go down. Oh, but the stock market isn't the economy. No one said it was the economy. I didn't say it was the economy. It's not the economy. I'm just saying it's something that a lot of people pay attention to because a lot of people have money in. The stock market is something that people pay a lot of attention to. It has television networks dedicated to it that churn out 24-7 content about these markets. So when they go down and when they technically enter a bear market, which these moves technically put it into, it is something that will garner a little bit of attention. Now. Here's the good news. It means that investors are now paying attention to the fact that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, which means they are attempting to slow down the economy. But they can only do that if the investors believe that. And so the investors are believing that. 
Wait a minute. Surprise announcement. More bad news. The Fed is almost certainly going to continue to raise interest rates. So if we are slowing down into a bear market now, when it continues to do that, well, you can fill in the rest. Those are the dollars. Let's talk about the political sense. There is a massive liability that Joe Biden and therefore the Democrats have on the economy. The reaction that the American people have toward Joe Biden on the economy is poison. Bell Biv DeVoe poison. It is not good at all. This is an investor's business daily poll that came out on Tuesday. Approval of Biden's economic policies fell to a new low. Now, 52% of all surveyed Americans disapprove of Biden's economic policies. How many approve? 25%. This was not the case in May. 47% disapproved and 29% approve. And you got to understand that there's a little bit of partisan lean in there, right? So, so many people are Republicans, so many people are Democrats. You would imagine that among the 25%, you are largely looking at true blue Democratic voters. Amongst that 52% majority, you are you have all of the Republicans Here's what's even worse, though. Independents disapprove of Joe Biden's handling of the economy 58% to 15%. If you're not talking about the economy, if you're not acknowledging the stock market, if you are not acknowledging the price of gas, if you are not acknowledging inflation, then you are losing. Politically, like, I don't know how I can say this any clearer. Gigantic alarms, huge air raid sirens should be going off in the White House at all times. And every day, the press secretary needs to be saying the inflation number is X. We are doing Y to fix it. Joe Biden needs to focus everything, every word that comes out of his mouth needs to have something that is at least focused on the pain of Americans in this particular situation. There is no amount of experts that you can have say this isn't really happening. This is happening. The American public see it. And at least according to the polling numbers, they're pissed. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to support this show, there is only one place you can do it, and that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I want to prepare you guys because uh, in a few weeks, your old boy, Justin Robert Young, will be leaving this fair uh, country. I'm, I'm going on a little bit of a vacation with my wife. However, I will not be leaving you guys high and dry. No. Original content will be provided for you while I am out of the country. And the reason why, the reason why this happens is because you guys have supported me throughout this entire journey. 
I know. Look, I can't just do a, th- a segment about about a possible coming recession and how freaked out people are about money and then not acknowledge that, look, money's tight. I understand. We see it on the Patreon. You know, there's there is a, a little bit of a, a tailing off. I think people are readjusting their budgets and I don't blame you, man. Gas is this expensive. Food is this expensive. Sometimes you got to take the uh, take take the moment to make sure that you are spending your money on the right stuff. But that also means for me that if there is a proposition for which I need to answer the challenge for, then I'm going to do it. I want to keep making sure that every time that you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, you get on our Patreon, you join at the $3 level, that you are happy with the decision that you made. You're getting value for your dollar. You're getting two free episodes each and every week. You're getting that Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show where we break down all of the Sunday morning talk shows. And this week, it was actually the breaking news of the bipartisan gun deal. Meanwhile, you also get the late edition, our Thursday And you're going to get both of those while I'm out of the country. More details on that in a few weeks. Still, it's because of you guys. I always want to make it worth it. And I always want to let you guys know that TakePoliticsSeriously.com is the only place that you go to support this show and get bonus content. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Whenever a horrifying event like the shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde happen, there is a lot of soul searching with the American relationship with guns. We've got a lot of them in this country, and I don't think it's controversial to say that it is woven into the cultural fabric of our nation. And as these things tend to get, the arguments are pitched and heated. It's the reason why I am surprised that during a midterm election season that the Senate came together and announced a bipartisan framework that has enough votes to pass for a gun control bill. In fact, as I'm recording this right now, the one and only Mitch McConnell says that as long as the language of the bill sticks to what the framework says, he will support it. That means it's going to pass. But what's in it? And more specifically, what is in it that will affect gun owners? Because, to be quite honest, they're the ones that the bill is being written for. Not for non-gun owners, like many gun control supporters are. I wanted to get a sense of what this is doing, what this aims to fix, and whether or not These seem to be smart solutions to the problems that exist today and whether or not anything would have affected the shootings that happened over the last few weeks. To get perspective on all this, we are joined by Stephen Gutowski. He is a writer for The Reload. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me. This is obviously a huge 
moment in terms of uh, the world of legislative action federally and guns, as it looks as if the Senate is on the cusp of striking a bipartisan deal in a midterm election season, no less, about gun control, the first of its kind in nearly 30 years. So what I wanted to talk about is just kind of where we are, what the proposed, the most controversial proposed things do, at least on the Second Amendment side. So uh, I think for a lot of folks that are listening on, on on the more liberal side, just what exists now, what these laws do, how they're different than laws that already exist. So what I want to start here with is background checks. One of the proposed frameworks is that the background check system, NICS, will now include juvenile records for anybody between the ages of 18 and 21. I will also caution here now, we're recording this before any actual laws out. This is just based on a press release that came out. Uh, So let's start with just background checks in general, Stephen. What is the current system for background checks and not focusing on who has to do them right now, but just if you do one, what happens? What does it check? How long does it take? Yeah. So in the United States, we mainly regulate gun sales uh, that are commercial in nature. So if you're in the business of selling firearms, you have to get a federal license to do so. And part of that license includes a requirement that any gun you sell to effectively to somebody else who is not a licensed gun dealer has to include a, an FBI background check, which is done through the national instant criminal background check system, uh, which is short for NICS is short for national instant criminal background check yeah. system. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, effectively that looks to see if you are in fact a prohibited person. Um, so if you have a criminal record that, prevents you a criminal or mental health record that prevents you from owning guns. Uh, And that would include uh, things such as um, federal or any sort of felony. So if you've been convicted of a crime that requires more than a year in jail, that would disqualify you from owning guns for the rest of your life. Uh, A domestic violence misdemeanor would also prohibit you. Uh, So would, um, a disqualifying mental health record. In other words, if you've been involuntarily committed or you've been adjudicated uh, mentally ill as a threat to yourself or others, that will also prohibit you from owning firearms. Um, If you've been discharged, dishonorably discharged from the military. So essentially if you've committed a crime that would be a felony in, if you were a civilian, that would prohibit you as well. Um, And so, you know, there's, and there's a number of things. If you're, if you're a, a drug user, a user of illicit drugs, that's another prohibiting uh, factor. Uh, Wait, how, so, does, how does that? How does that get proven? <laughs> yeah, just on, on the record, you know, if I'm on Twitter saying heroin's great, like I, I, I no longer am able to buy a gun. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. This is an, that's an that's an area where. So, for instance, if you have a an arrest and you're facing okay. charges for possession. Uh, that would disqualify you. That's something that would show up in a next check. Uh, that's actually one of the issues. Uh, the, the Charleston uh, shooting, he was uh, facing charges for possession, which is why the theory goes that he was a prohibited person and should have been prevented. But the FBI messed up his background check and didn't gotcha. find the right records. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, some of it is a little bit fuzzy. You know, this is why you'll hear people talk about Hunter Biden uh, not mm-hmm. not getting, uh, you know, th- that they want him to be prosecuted 
because he bought a gun while he later admitted in his books that he was an illicit drug user at the time. Uh, and so it's uh, it, in practice, oftentimes it's a pretty high standard to try and prosecute somebody for that. Uh, you're effectively, you have to show that they were a continual abuser of, of illicit substances during the time they bought their gun. So even if you admit to the police that you like smoked weed the day that you bought your gun, doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that they could convict you on uh, a federal charge. Also, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a paperwork crime. It's effectively you, the crime would be that you lied on the background check. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, that, you know, there's, oh yeah. Well, look, if, if smoking weed of, and buying guns is, is, uh, uh, so, so prosecuted, then, uh, uh, boy, do we have a lot of confessions in all of rap music, but uh, right. we, we, will, uh, we, will, we will move, we'll move on for now. Cause I don't, I don't want, I don't is, want to get bogged down a whole, here. That's a whole other issue. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. the Florida, the, 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 uh, woman running for governor in Florida as a Democrat wants to sort of, uh, change, change the law on that front, because in some States, obviously it's legal to, to smoke weed, smoke but weed. it's still yeah. it's still illegal at the federal level, and so that uh, causes problems with gun gun possession. Anyway, that's the side quest side uh, side quest side, side, side quest side quest. All right, so here let me let me let me get into background checks in general yes. because this is something that we have heard a lot and does come up a lot during, uh, especially after big events like like the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo. When we when everybody sort of goes back to their battle stations on where we are on guns, one of the things that you often hear from the more liberal side of this argument is universal background checks and uh, and stuff like that. For which, if mm-hmm. if that is your position, I do think it is very important to understand exactly what our background check system is now, the flaws with it, and. If it's going to expand exponentially, possibly, then understanding and anticipating problems that might come down the road. So from your perspective, what are the biggest flaws with NICS right now? Well, so one thing I think is important to talk about real quick is there's a lot of misunderstanding about how the system works, uh, especially surrounding universal background check proposals, right? Yeah. Uh, so you often hear, you know, the, the gun show loophole or the internet loophole, right? And there's this implication that there's some sort of exception exception in federal law for gun shows or internet sales that doesn't actually exist. Remember, I started talking the beginning of this. I said that we regulate commercial sales of firearms in the United States. Yes. So that's what we do. If it's any commercial sale by a licensed dealer has to include a background check. It doesn't matter where yeah. it happens. If if the, they want to keep their license and, and stay in good standing with the government, they need to prove that every sale that they have made is through the right. system. In theory, right. One of the critiques in is theory. that the ATF doesn't do enough um, compliance checks. That's one of the common uh, complaints you'll hear from, from uh, gun control activists on, on the current system. As it as it works now, they say there's there's not enough compliance checks from the ATF overseeing all those gun dealers because there's a lot of there's a lot of FFLs federally federal firearms licensees. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, the the way it works now is that commercial sales are regulated. And those require background checks. Non commercial sales are not. So uh, if I or you want to sell a gun that you own, you know, like a used gun, just like if you sold a used car or something. Um, yeah, you could just you could do what's what most people call a private sale, and and that doesn't require a background check under federal law. 
Now, some states yeah. have already implemented universal background checks, and what the way it works in practice is essentially they would they'll require that you, whenever you make a sale to another person, uh, with there are exceptions usually for like family members or, or something of that nature, but uh, strangers or even friends usually are not accepted. So if you make a sale, if you sold your friend a gun, you'd have to go to a licensed dealer and have them transfer. Really what you're doing is transferring the gun to the dealer, then from the dealer to the, the dealer is, is going there. Buying. And so they're running the, 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 the check. Right. Uh, that uh, on, on that private sale. Yeah. And so, uh, but as far as critiques of the current system go, um, you know, obviously you, you have this sort of oversight critique about the ATF not being well-funded enough or having enough agents to oversee the hundreds of thousands of, of gun dealers in the country, licensed dealers. But then you also have uh, a lot of c- complaints about um, enforcement of these, uh, these crimes when somebody is lying on a background check to try and get a gun, mm-hmm. um, if they're a prohibited person. Basically, the way a background check works in practice is you go into the store, you pick out the gun, and then you fill out uh, an ATF form, Form 4473, which is where you put in all your identifying personal information. And you, as part of that, you have to check a series of boxes. Um, and if you buy enough guns, you can re- <laughs> at a certain point, you remember that what the, uh, it becomes, you know, you, you know, so you know, you know how to fill out that, that Christmas tree. Like it's a scan yeah, test. without, yeah. without even like looking at the question, but basically you, you look at the questions and it just asked you like, basically, are you a prohibited person? Just ask you that in a bunch of different ways. And so yeah. you have to say, no, I'm, it is, you know, yes, I can own this gun. Basically I can buy it. It's for me. Oh, so I'm they're, not they're, they're for trying, they're trying to not make you, they're not giving you like, like, have you ever dealt drugs? Uh, right. Every once in a while they'll switch it up and be like, yeah, they don't uh, try they'll, to make, they'll make you. you ask yes instead of no. Gotcha. If they ever change that form, I think you'd get a lot of people accidentally putting it out there. Right <laughs> triggering, triggering the next system. Yeah. Just because of the, the muscle memory from filling it out a bunch of times. It also tracks your weight. So. I wish they let you have really? access to it so you can, yeah, well, you have to give a, your height and weight and age and co- eye color, hair color, I guess. So oh, for what, in case, in you case are, like, they oh, want to oh, put out a bolo on you or whatever, if you. Well, I guess also because a, a lot of people, something that, that some listeners sent in emails about after, after uh, the, the, the shootings were that part of the problem with the Nick system is that because it's so dependent on name, that mm. people with more common names, yep. uh, not only does it take longer, but they're more likely to get, I guess, what it's called provisional approval yeah. because they're it's at a certain point, somebody just throws up their hands and says, I don't know yet. Yeah, James Johnson. I don't right. know if you're the 18 year old who likes to go hunting or the serial murderer, but f- whatever. Yeah, that is that is one of the issues is these uh, delays that people with more common names will get. You can put your social security number in there, but it's not required. So, so oh, okay. obviously, so, so you can make it go faster if you want. Uh, presumably, theoretically, I mean, theoretically, you know. Yeah, you can, you can I mean, provide I'd, more information to the information query. Yeah, it's designed to be instant, right? That's in the name. That's the whole point of this. Yes. Was that it? It was That's meant to vowel. be a background check that makes it. Uh, so that it's not a huge burden on lawful gun owners, but also prevents people who have uh, a criminal history from buying guns. That's the whole concept of the system. Yeah. Right. Uh, one of the, but one of the critiques, one of the common critiques beyond the ATF oversight is um, that oftentimes 
lying on the form is it's a federal felony, right? To lie on this form to say that you, you aren't prohibited when you really are. And so uh, oftentimes that doesn't get prosecuted is one of the top complaints. So you, you have what's called a lie and try where uh, you know, somebody who's prohibited goes in, they just lie on the background check and say they're not prohibited. And then they uh, are caught by the background check system and don't get their gun, but then often they aren't actually prosecuted for gotcha. that. Now, you know, there's a lot, as with everything, right. There's a lot of nuance there. It's like, do you could be prohibited and not realize it, I suppose. Um, you know, given the things that make you prohibited, there may be some uh, altercation you got into 30 years ago. Uh, you ended up pleading to um, uh, what, what the federal system now uh, considers a domestic violence misdemeanor. Like if you yeah. got in a fight with your, with your brother or something uh, because they're, um, you know, and uh, also, a family look, member. Our, it could our, be yeah, our, our, our court system is imperfect. I, I once had a conversation with a guy who wound up getting popped for for possession, driving back from New Orleans. Uh, thought he hired a lawyer. Thought he he had dealt with everything that was to be dealt with. Uh, as it turned out, the lawyer just went out of business, and the court wasn't able to find a new lawyer. And next thing you know, he got a parking ticket and was in a, a jail bus because he had an outstanding warrant that he was totally unaware of. So like, right. it is not so, impossible to, to envision these, these scenarios. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's some, some of these people who fail the background check might do so unknowingly. Uh, some of them probably do so knowingly trying to get a yes. gun with, yes. without realizing that the system will catch them. Um, and, and so the, one of the top critiques of the system is that people don't actually get prosecuted for those, those offenses. Um, And, and it's likely because one, it's not a very sexy prosecution. You know what I mean? Like federal prosecutors are looking for ways to take down, you know, multi-state drug gangs and, and, you know, murder, you know, serial killers. And so that's how you make a career as a federal prosecutor, right? Not through, doing 10,000 background check. This is meter made kind of stuff uh, yeah, on the that, federal and, level. And it's also probably fairly difficult to, it's at least a relatively difficult thing to prove in court. Cause basically you're just saying, I mean, you, you check the wrong box on a form effectively is what, is what the crime is. Uh, so, you know, that that's probably the biggest critique. Obviously the other critique would be that criminals just avoid the system altogether and it doesn't, this isn't how criminals were are, are getting their guns anyway. Uh, they don't try to go to licensed gun dealers to do to buy guns that they plan on using in crimes. Most of them, if you look at surveys of people convicted of gun crimes, um, University of Chicago does surveys, people in the Cook County uh, prison system. And, you know, they buy them from people they know and trust, which you might yeah. expect for, you know, somebody who's planning to use a gun in a crime. They're probably not buying them from. Uh, somebody that's likely to give them a problem down the line uh, after they've committed that crime. Right. So, uh, you know, that, that would be the overall critiques of this system. And, some and, of the common and I think because we have very recently uh, over the last 10 years had some of the most visual and grotesque gun crimes happen because of people between the ages of 18 and 21 who did lawfully buy their guns uh, through a background check. We now Mm -hmm. get what is in this proposal, which would essentially say that in this system, which from, from uh, what you've described draws from local and federal 
databases uh, uh, for, for criminal records. Now, for somebody between the ages of 18 and 21, essentially as you're building up that record, instead of coming in with an absolutely clean slate, if you had these prohibited items in your juvenile record, that that would also trigger you to be prohibited. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a little unclear, right? This framework is still just a framework. Being it really written. just gives yeah. you yeah. what they've agreed to is just a sentence for each proposal. So uh, the details are going to be very interesting to see because, you know, honestly, you could read it a number of ways or you could go off of what some of the senators have said. Uh, you know, Senator Tillis had had a more detailed explanation of what they're considering than what's actually in that framework. but. Um, you know, cause you read that framework, it could, it, it honestly it kind of sounds more like they're trying to set up a new special background check process just for people oh. under 21. I don't Nick's think that's junior. what they're doing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't think that's what they're trying to do. I think there is more what you're talking about, which is like, they want to add some criminal ju- uh, juvenile criminal records to the Nick system. That's yeah. the more, that's the more like that's the easier approach or the less radical I mean, change. You know, and this is, this is the thing that I think we all should uh, uh, be more educated on because again, if, if, if the solution for some folks is to expand this even further or, or to, to make this more of a thing, then we do need to know what goes into it. Cause it's not just a magic spell that is, that is cast upon everybody that makes them lawfully purchase a gun. It is a system and a database, just like any other system and database that requires buy-in and participation by people and either works or doesn't work depending on flaws within it. Right. Yeah. And and this is another common critique is that the the system over the, over time, uh, and this is one that they've tried to address a number of times, including uh, just recently in 2018 uh, after the Sutherland Springs shooting, uh, the, one of the problems with the system is that it doesn't always have all of the records that it, it, yeah. that it should. Um, you know, you're supposed to get all those disqualifying criminal mental health records in the system, but uh, there have been several horrible shootings where the problem was that the person passed the background check because their disqualifying records weren't in the, the background check system. So you had that in Virginia Tech. Uh, yeah. He had disqualifying mental health records. Uh, I believe he'd been involuntarily committed at some point, but he was able to buy his gun and pass a background check because the records weren't submitted to Nick's. Uh, same thing for Sutherland Springs. That that shooter had a disqualifying uh, criminal and mental health record. He had like he was disqualified in like five different ways. He was uh, he had served time in military prison for violent felonies, which were committed against a uh, uh, they were domestic violence because they committed against his family. And he also was involuntarily committed and he was dishonorably discharged. You know, you get the idea. Like he had a lot of records that should have prevented him from buying a gun, but they weren't included in the system because the air force wasn't sharing their records with the FBI. So gotcha. Congress passed a bill called fix Nix that incentivized States to share more records and, and as well as the, the military branches, this has happened a couple of times. And this is what you're talking, what they're talking about now with juvenile, mental health records uh, or criminal records um, would be a similar idea. It's more of an expansion because this previous cases were records that already should have been in the system. Whereas this one is expanding what records they want to see in the system. But uh, you know, it's, that's been a common problem with the system since it was first, you know, created. Uh, And so uh, that's, 
that's been one of the things that they've actually like in terms of fixing the system. That's what they've tried to do over the years. I don't want to make you an avatar for all gun owners, but you do write for an audience for which is dialed into this issue. Do you get the sense that the juvenile record expansion on the background check is particularly controversial or amongst everything that is in this particular agreement? Do you think that 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 seems more common sense to gun owners? I think that will depend on the details, right? Because if, if it's sure. just, yeah. if it's just like, oh, you, you murdered someone as a, as a 14 year old, sh- you know, that record should be in next. Okay. I think probably most people would be fine with that, but if it's literally creating a whole new background check process for 18 to 20 year olds, I could see a lot of people being worried that that will just end up getting expanded to everybody eventually. And, uh, you know, gotcha. especially and if there it's would like, be a longer pool. So things that you did, you, you would you'd be uh, eliminating for everybody any uh, issue that you had as a juvenile, let alone uh, just having it end at 21. Well, I think I think, um, you know, obviously the including juvenile records at all is going to be controversial, probably beyond gunners to more to like uh, privacy uh, advocates. You know, yeah. And, and like justice reform advocates, uh, because yeah. the whole concept of basically you're just getting rid of the concept of, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, expunging somebody's record when they become of age, uh, yeah. just for this one area. I mean, I'm easy to see how that could expand too. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm talking more about if you're going to make a whole new background check process just for those 18 to 20 year olds, uh, it's not hard to see how that could get morphed uh, in a couple years to make that process the process for everybody. So this is what I mean by like the language is not very clear and it probably just means adding these juvenile records to the current system. Uh, but there is the way it's written in the framework makes it sound more like they're creating a whole new background check process yeah. just for 18 to 20 year olds. Which is not the same thing as adding juvenile records to NICS, right? Because you just if you're adding juvenile records to NICS, that's uh, that will that would affect everybody, but it would just be basically um, uh, you, you you're not changing anything about the system. You're just adding new kinds of records to it. Whereas if you're making a whole new background check process for 18 to 20 year olds, that would be a much more radical change of the system. Does that make sense? Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I can uh, see people uh, being much more opposed to that idea uh, because they, you know, they view it as slippery slope stuff, right? Like, oh, well, if we make this change here for 18, 20 year olds, how long before that new process is just the process for everybody? It's just the new that, process that happens. And maybe that everybody. process takes days instead of being instantaneous. So you're kind of undermining the whole concept of the system itself uh, into this much broader, uh, longer period of, of, checking on people's records uh, when the whole concept is met, it's supposed to be instantaneous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll I, I asked that, I asked that only because I, I assume from my audience, which is not entirely made up of second amendment uh, of, of, of aficionados that the red flag laws seem to be a little bit more controversial uh, for, 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 for the record. This is, again, we don't know exactly what this would be, and this would not be a federal red flag law. This would be money that goes to states incentivizing them to create red flag laws. 
uh, as you understand them now, and, and they are in existence, at least in Florida, I know for sure, what is a red flag law? They're actually in existence in 19 states already. Uh, okay. So, so they're fairly widely adopted at this point, mostly since Parkland. You've seen these, yeah. these laws come into existence, mostly in blue states. But, but yeah, effectively, what a red flag law does is allow judges to issue temporary gun confiscation orders. Like the, they allow the judicial system to take some of these firearms away from them and prevent them from buying new guns. If the, if they've been shown to be a threat to themselves or others. Now the problem, the problem that you get into, and, and you're right that this is fairly controversial among gun owners uh, because obviously it deals directly with confiscating someone's firearms, even if it is, in theory, a temporary confiscation, uh, because the person isn't actually, this is a civil process. This person's not charged with any crimes uh, yeah. or anything of that nature. And, and often they're not, they don't face any other consequences besides having their firearms removed from them, which, you know, you'll have a lot of people say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense if they're a threat to themselves or others. Um, you know, wh- why would that be the, why would taking their guns away be the only thing that that is done? But um you know, in fact, there's there's also concern over who can file for an order, right? Because that varies from state to state. There's a lot of variation here too, uh, and so there might be there may be a, a a red flag proposal that you could put up that uh, most gun owners would be supportive of if it had you know robust uh, protections for due process and limits on who could request an order and punishments for people who abuse. The system because what you'll hear a lot of criticism of is is this idea that like you know a vengeful family member or ex wife yes. or ex husband could file one of these against somebody and it's difficult for that you know really the way these work is oftentimes they'll get issued in an ex parte manner so the person being uh, red flag doesn't have any actual representation or recourse for themselves yeah. in that immediate period where their guns are ordered to be taken away from them, which you can obviously imagine can also cause a lot of confrontation when police come to show up uh, to take the guns. There's there yes. was a case in Maryland where a man was red flagged and he was killed during the process where police came to try and, and, and take his firearms. Um, now, and you're obviously dealing with uh, even even if people aren't abusing the system, you're still dealing with people who are fairly unstable in the state of mind if, if the system works properly. So it's going to always be dangerous at that point of uh, confiscation where they're coming to actually enforce a red flag order. But anyway, uh, you know, the idea goes that somebody could file one of these more likely than not a judge is going to issue a red flag order because you don't want to be the judge that doesn't issue the red flag order. And then um, somebody and then, dies. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, there's a strong incentive to just follow through on these orders, at least in the initial term. So that first 48 hours or so, uh, well, that's another thing that depends on you know state by state, how long until you can get that follow up hearing where the, the person who's been red flagged actually gotcha. has a chance to go to court. Uh, if it, you know, I think um, David French, who's a conservative columnist, who's an advocate for red flag laws, he, he wants them to be within 48 hours. But some places, New York, for instance, it's 10 days. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, and then there's then there's the question of uh, evidentiary standard. What standard do you use for uh, granting these orders? Is it just um, clear and convincing evidence? 
is it uh, a higher standard than that? You know, a, a, was it a preponderance of, of evidence, you know, 51% basically? Um, that's another question. Like how high is the evidentiary standard used to take somebody's guns away, even if it's temporary? And then, of course, how temporary are these really? Because most places will let you extend them for you. So the first one's maybe two days to 10 days for that initial order. And then, and then uh, you get a hearing to say, mm-hmm. I, this was unjust, if that's what you if believe. If you want one. And look, not everybody, not everybody yeah. uh, who gets red flagged is a lot of people who, this, who get caught in this, uh, who are red flagged are actually in mental health crisis. Usually yeah. it's somebody they got, that's they got, suicidal. They got, they, got other, they got other stuff that is, that is happening in their life that they might want to focus sure. on more than, than or they might agree. Guns. They might be okay with having their guns taken away during yeah. that time period. You know, I'm not saying that everybody this happens to is, it's not always malicious or even the person's going to be combative. That's confrontational. That's yeah. It's not necessarily the case, but, but uh, you know, in this, what you need to look out for are the uh, potential abuses and making sure that people's rights are respected because this is, you're talking about a very serious thing, confiscating someone's firearms. They have a, a, a constitutional right to have those guns. And so you need to have, be able to uh, respect that in, in the legal process that you have set up. And, and that's where you get all these questions of like, how fast is this follow-up hearing? What level of evidence is required? What's the punishment for filing a false, uh, you know, red flag order requests? Yep. Um, you, and these are, there's different answers depending on what state you're in. And that's where you get a lot of, consternation from from gunners uh where this has become it's sort of like what you'll what you'll mainly see i think from a lot of gun rights activists like the nra for instance uh is that they they're not necessarily opposed to the concept but often or almost always in practice they don't like the actual ball that comes about yeah and so you you haven't seen these adopted anywhere outside of other than florida right which which that came in the immediate aftermath of parkland um but other than there, you haven't seen red states really adopt these uh, these policies. And so it's mainly been a blue state, uh, a blue state policy thing. to this point. Yeah. The thing that I've tended to default as a comparison would be, and this is also something that's called something different state by state, but in California, they called it a 5150. In Florida, they call it being Baker acted. It is involuntarily being taken in. Uh, because you are having a a mental health break and and family is often the or or domestic partner or the people that initiated to my knowledge that's not even something that goes through a court that is that is a decision that is made by the the responding police officer maybe there is some paperwork past past that that uh, uh I, I i'm not aware of but but that seems to me to be the closest thing of depriving somebody of their ability to be a free citizen without it being a criminal charge and without uh, any kind of immediate representation that, that, that you get would, would that for you be the closest comp that we have now? Um, Actually, I would say that that's the next step up in terms of difficulty from, you know, like the state's point of view in terms of involuntarily committing somebody is often more complicated then doing a red flag law, that's kind of what you'll hear from advocates of red flag laws is that there's sort yeah. of this, there's sort of a, you know, uh, the way our mental health system works and, and look, I'm not an expert on our mental health system by any means. So I, I, you know, I can't speak too detailed on it, but generally it's, it's more difficult to involuntarily commit somebody or it's, it's fairly difficult to do. 
And so instead, that's what red flags are meant to fill this gap of like somebody who's showing red flags, right, uh, in their behavior, but who hasn't done uh, reached the point to where a Baker Act they need to be committed. In. Gotcha. Okay. Right. I mean, that's the idea of it. Uh, you know, in practice, what's the, what is it? So I guess an example would be Buffalo, right? The Buffalo yeah. shooter, he was taken for mental evaluation. Uh, so one thing to keep in mind is that involuntarily committing somebody that makes them a prohibited person for life. Um, okay. If you Baker act somebody under federal law, they would be prohibited from owning guns. Yeah. There's no more. Uh, it's not temporary. It's, it's permanent. And, um, but uh, you know, what qualifies as per, uh, involuntary commitment, I guess, must be a fairly uh, uh, somewhat difficult to figure out. Because if you look at the Buffalo shooter situation, um, he was taken for evaluation at a mental health facility for a day and a half. He was taken there by police after the school identified him as a potential risk to himself and others because he had he'd uh, made uh, he'd like voiced some concept of killing people. And yeah. but for whatever reason. He was found not to be a threat to himself or others after that day and a half. And I, uh, some reason that did not qualify as involuntary commitment. I don't really understand why I haven't seen any reporting on, on explaining that fact. Um, and then also, so this would have been a situation where, okay, uh, perhaps you could red flag him instead, um, but they didn't do that in Buffalo. Uh, so, you know, there's another thing like, you know, how often these are actually used. There's not a lot of really good data on them yet uh, to this point, because a lot of them are so new. Um, you know, the Rand Corporation did a review of studies that essentially found inconclusive evidence for any effect one way or the other. Uh, and in large part, because there just isn't a lot of uh, rigorous study of them yet, because most of them are only a couple of years old at this point. So a lot of what we're dealing with is anecdotal and theory based, you know, well, this sounds like something that could prevent a mass shooter. If somebody recognizes and takes advantage of somebody recognizes red flags and takes advantage of these laws. Well, in theory that could stop them. And have you seen in California, they've reported people have been red flagged for making threats of mass shootings, but it's hard to, it's also hard obviously to show that that's, that was a real threat that was really going to happen. And it, is, really yeah, it, is, it is, it is hard. It is hard to prove a negative. Right. So right, it's like, right. like that theoretically the law working is never seeing any results. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing, but you're right. As far as the federal proposal goes, there was a, there is a version that passed the house that said we, that would let federal judges issue these well, orders. A uh, lot, a lot, a lot of stuff passes the house. Uh, yeah. That's, that's uh, not I, I going anywhere. The the no. grant system is, is the one that's in this actual Senate framework. Uh, so on, on your way out here, cause I, 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 I know uh, you have, you have a hard out. Is there anything else that you would see as, as controversial as those two elements in this framework that, that folks should be aware of? There's two more gun related things. There's um, we mentioned Charleston earlier. He got his gun after uh, um, we were talking about the delays and and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Well, one of the safeguards in the way the system works is that after three days, if the FBI hasn't determined one way or the other, whether you're prohibited, the sale is allowed to go through if the dealer wants to make the sale. And so that's how the Charleston shooter got his gun. Uh, Although there's misconception there too, because it's not as though the FBI just gives up after three days and stops looking 
um, at whether or not you're prohibited, they will continue to investigate you. And then if they find out you're prohibited after you've they taken the gun, yeah, they'll send the ATF to go and collect the gun from you. Uh, this happens a couple thousand times a year, basically. But but um, anyway, one of the proposals that has been pushed around because of uh, what what pe- people on the gun control side call the Charleston loophole, uh, they want to extend that time where the from three days out to it depends on the proposal, but 10 days, 10 business days, 20 business days. Of course, one of the wrinkles there is that NICS checks only last for 30 calendar days. So if you extend this, you can get into like a perpetual loop where the NICS check expires before their, that 20 day business yeah. uh, limit. So you basically, because the idea for that three day window is that the FBI can't just indefinitely say they haven't determined whether you're yeah. prohibited or not. Right? It's, because it's, because we're also sense. getting further and further away from the instant part of the instant background. Right. But it's also just like, they could just, for if there was no limit, they would, they could, in theory, they could just say, well, we haven't made a determination if you're prohibited forever. <laughs> and then you yeah. just never be able to buy a gun. Um, even without the government saying you're actually prohibited. Right. So that's what yeah. that's, that's why that's there. But they, so they, part of the framework extends that, there doesn't say how long yet, but um, the other thing is uh, with the, those licenses that we discussed, dealer licenses. Yeah. Um, and remember I said at the beginning that anyone who's quote in the business of selling firearms has to get a license, but what yeah. the heck does in the business mean? And that's been a controversial thing for a long time because there's no, there's no like number that they put on it. It's it's basically just a kind of uh, I know it when I see it thing from the, the ATF. Oh, wow. where, so, so there's no there's no like if you sell more than five guns in a year, you need to register or, or 10 or 100 or whatever. Like uh, uh, right. it is just you should do it if you are looking to actually make serious money off it because right. it's going to make life easier for you. Other That's than right. that, if you are doing it as a semi hobby or, or just a busy, uh, 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 person or somebody, or somebody who's a near to well, then, then you, yeah. there's no like actual, uh, line there. There's no specific line. And this is actually gone. You hear this complaint about in both directions from both sides, because on the one hand, uh, obviously one of the reasons that uh, people in the gun control side want more licensed dealers, this little senses that might make on the surface is that licensed dealers have to perform background checks. So yes, the more people that you uh, make get a license, the more likely it is that they're going to have to perform a background check on whoever they're selling guns to. Right. Uh, but then on the other side uh, you've seen, well, you, you also at the same time, if you might recall, if you're old, if people are old enough, the complaints over kitchen table dealers, which uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people got the the federal license because uh, it gives you. I mean, it gives you a bunch of exemptions. You can uh, you, you can have guns shipped to your your address for wherever your FFL is, and so if it's if you have a home business as an FFL, you can have guns shipped to your house instead of having to go to the gun store. Um, uh, uh, you, you don't have to go through the background checks, uh, every time you purchase a gun, if you're an FFL, um, I mean, obviously you go through a process to get the FFL, but, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of benefits to being an FFL beyond that, that somebody who's not necessarily making a living off of selling guns might want one. And, And so this became a problem, at least according to, uh, you know, the Clinton administration, and so they cracked down on on people who 
had FFLs, but weren't really in the business of selling firearms. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, they didn't really want that to be the case either. And so it's always been kind of a balancing act. And then at the same time, you had the Obama administration, because going back to this idea of like, well, if we have more licensed dealers, we'll have more background checks on the gun sales that they do. Uh, the Obama administration said at one point that, you know, it doesn't matter how many guns you sell. You could sell as few as one gun and still be considered somebody who's in the business. It just depends on the circumstance. Uh, if you're making money off that, if you're advertising yourself as though you're, you know, as a gun dealer, if you, you know, have a storefront or something, so, you know, there's a lot of factors that can go into it, but it is a pretty vague uh, standard. And now part of this deal is that they want to make it a, a, a hard standard of, they, or, of, course, yeah. of course they don't say what the number is yet <laughs> which we're going to find out uh, uh because I, I i suspect and i would i would uh, think that you would agree considering the passion that comes out from the from 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 the gun owner sides of these arguments that i, I don't think if they have a deal now they are not going to let this thing sit in the air for any longer than they absolutely have to yeah. they are going to try and vote on this as soon as possible they're supposed, well, you know, there's, there's always a difference between what senators would like the reality to be on writing of text and what staffers actually can get done. But yeah, you know, that they, they want to have text by Friday of, uh, you know, what is that June, um, uh, June 17th, they'd like to have text, which is, uh, less than a week after they agreed to the framework. So we'll see it's if they very, can get it done. Very, very fast for something very controversial, but also I know that they want to get it done before July 4th because That's they right. do not want to have to go back to their districts and uh, watch, you know, uh, they would rather the deal be done, I think. And to be fair, that's, logical if you're on the the side of the pro side for this framework because the longer you wait on these sorts of uh deals as we've seen in the past the less likely you're going to see uh an actual successful bill come see it out happen. Of it. yeah yeah because so. uh, i mean the passions are so high that uh, uh eventually yeah when you're on we're in a razor thin margin like uh like yep. any kind of issue is in this in this particular Senate, but guns even more so than mm-hmm. that is that is I, I I I yeah I think that this is going to get voted on if it gets voted on at all it'll get voted on very fast yeah and 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 because if you look back to 2018 look at Parkland after that there was the same sort of momentum initially for uh, Lindsey Graham's red flag bill which is part of this yep. this framework and uh, that actually fell apart mainly because of the the first impeachment. Um, you know, Trump was on board. He was, yeah. you know, he was saying all kinds of stuff in the White House that made a lot of gun owners very angry. Uh, and then, uh, but it all fell apart because other politics got in the way, effectively, which yeah. is exactly what was, you it was could calling, see happen. Calling the banners there. Yep. Uh, well, I'll tell you what we are. We are very, very thrilled that we have the expertise of Stephen Gutowski. Uh Please read his work on the Reload if uh, you are interested in this and other issues of uh, the, uh, the 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 gun rights stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. You can thank Stephen Gutowski for joining us on the program at px3guest.com. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter, hit the show up on Twitter at px3tweets. 
Find me on Twitch Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for a little coffee and politics. px3live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy. px3podcast.com. And politics merch can be found at politicsmerch.com. You want to support me with a one-time donation? It is paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Our cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything physical in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. 10 Dollar tier, including V Guard, Alexis, Neil of Neils, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Double K Ranch, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Niemeister, Nick's Horseless Diner, Catherine, persons familiar with the matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, 100 Mile Runner, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Start, Dr. G, Headphones, Neil, Charles, Darren, Idris, Arslandi, and Blue Friend, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana Shrill, Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot, middle age, Mike, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Gen, Adam, LD, Really, Chopper, J. Pink, Andrew, and Josh. Going to join their ranks. You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 level. On Friday's episode of the show, we will be joined by the one, the only, you are not so smart, David McRaney. Man's got a new book out he's been working on for six years. How Minds Change. Propaganda, politics, big issues, and how they evolve all is discussed on Friday. Until then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.